Hello, everybody. Welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. My name is Peter Ravella, the co-host of this show, along with Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host, and we have the executive director of ASBPA with us today. The night before the conference, Derek Brockbank, it's great to have you with us. Thank you. Yeah, glad to be here. Well, I'm, uh, it's, it's a thrill. We've been talking about this all year. We've been talking about it on every podcast so far in the network about coming to the national conference. And as Tyler said, it's like the night before Christmas. We're about to <laughs> unwrap the package. And I'm really looking forward to three great days of great science, great coastal policy, great coastal uh, thinkers uh, all joined together in Galveston. Derek, so glad you brought this together. Uh, thrilled, yeah. And glad you guys could be here and, and we can share this on the podcast network. Absolutely. So it's no surprise that uh, our sponsor today is this very conference. We are here. We've we've been harping on it for a while, but uh, ASBPA.org, get registered. There is still a few hours left to get down here. We would love to see you, uh, as, as you will hear on this pod, which is dedicated to the conference. Uh, there are some awesome programming uh, in play coming up. So we would love to see you, including a roundtable that we're going to be doing uh, on this podcast on the final day, mm-hmm. uh, where you could be on the show and uh, tell us what you've learned and why this conference is so great. So uh, thank you to our sponsor, ASBPA, ASBPA.org, to get registered. Hope to see you here in Galveston. And if you can't make it down to the conference, you can follow the proceedings. We will be tweeting and on Facebook at hashtag ASBPA2018. Keep track, follow along. Uh, there'll be a lot of highlights. Uh, we'll have one of the keynote speakers uh, as a guest tomorrow night, I hope. And uh, so, Derek, we're really looking forward to, to, the, to the three days and uh, learning a hell of a lot about the American shoreline. Absolutely. Yeah, me too. <laughs> uh, so I understand, Derek, even though the crowds don't assemble until tomorrow morning, uh, there has been a lot of activity today. And it's not just that Tyler and I and the other exhibitors showed up and put our booths together. Uh, there was a lot of hammering and drilling going on. <laughs> and, uh, Indeed. Uh, the other, but the most important thing that happened today was the ASBPA short course. And I understand you, uh, you passed. I, well, I haven't got my grades yet, but I did take it, um, and I think I passed. Uh, yeah, no, this is a, a really cool program that we've been running in conjunction with uh, the Coastal Zone Foundation, um, where we host short courses. Uh, they're sort of half-day classes on coastal topics, and uh, they're open to members of the public or coastal professionals. Usually it's people who are attending the conference, and you get to learn a little something about uh, a specific coastal topic. Um, it's a it's a program that is essentially building upon uh, or broadening the base of knowledge for coastal practitioners, and it's uh, expanding to be ten modules that will provide a certification hmm. for coastal practitioners. So, how did this idea of of the short course come about? Yeah, good question. So, there's a lot of other associations that have certification programs, uh, whether it's the Association of State Floodplain Managers has a certified floodplain manager, um, other professional associations, the Wildlife Society has, you know, if you want to be a certified wildlife manager, you can go through a a series of trainings with them. And so uh, a number of our board members came up with the idea of saying, we are a a broad-based coastal organization. Um, And so rather than really looking at 
taking an issue in depth, we want to provide an opportunity to go broad. Um, and so the two classes that were taught today, I think, exemplify that. Uh, it was a government operations class in the morning, and then in the afternoon it was coastal geology. Huh. Uh, so if you are a coastal professional, if you're in charge of running a, a beach on a town, whether it's Galveston or Folly Beach or, or the county of Los Angeles, you probably need to know a little bit about how the government works, and you probably also need to know a little bit about how coastal geology works. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And those are just two. So we've got 10 modules ranging from uh, government affairs to coastal geology, coastal engineering, um, coastal zone management, all those kind of things. And so uh, today was the, uh, we have now finished all 10 modules. And so um, I, uh, both myself and uh, one of our co-chairs of our conference, Ruben Trevino, who's the beach operations director here in Galveston, have taken all 10 and you know, assuming we passed our exam at the end of the day, uh, we will be the first to receive those those coastal certifications. But the hope is that um, more people will in the future. Well, we have our uh, fingers crossed for you that you get those <laughs> grades coming back. Now, Derek, uh, I so obviously one of the critical things that you just touched on is that uh, as a professional in this space, there's all of these other uh, disciplines, sub-disciplines that are incredibly nuanced. And I find this fascinating because, Peter, this is one of the core nuances of and, and motivations behind the American Shoreline Podcast Network is this idea that we mm -hmm. need to uh, broaden the discussion and learn how to talk with each other, even even when it's a little uncomfortable and it's it's technical and we don't know. We don't want to go listen to the engineer if you're the if mm -hmm. you're the legal person. But hey, and the engineer doesn't want to go listen to the legal talk. But hey, we all have to get together in the same room. We all have to be able to speak the same language. And the short course, Derek, it sounds like it's a great opportunity for uh, conference goers. And and let's let's remember Pat Passetti, who's not, I, I mean, she's certainly a professional, but she's she's a person, she's a, she's a citizen who's concerned and she has been coming and I understand that she's one course short, but Pat, get there, finish it up. Yeah. <laughs> Pat Passetti from Florida, who a self-taught, uh, self-motivated, yeah. Coastal, I would say, professional now. She's a, a property manager down in Florida who, in talking to Pat over the years, has told us about confronting the complexity of coastal shoreline management issues, determined to become better at it, to know what the hell was going on, to understand what the engineers were talking about, to understand why things totally. cost what they cost, and, and jumped into the certification program. And that's one of the things I like about the ASBPA certification program is it's open to all people. You mm -hmm. don't have to be a geologist or an engineer to sit through these and to and to learn. Yeah, that's that's right. It's it's meant for folks like Pat, um, and as well as folks like myself. I mean, I'm a political science background. I you know I haven't taken a geology class since I think the eighth grade, um, and you know part of my job is to be at least fluent enough in coastal geology to talk about some of these issues with mm -hmm. PhD geologists. Right. And so this helps me get up to speed <clears throat> in areas that I don't know about. Uh, and likewise, you know, the, the class was taught by a couple of our board members who are PhD geologists, but I ask them to come up to Capitol Hill and lobby about appropriations right. funding every year. And so they need to understand the process that gets a project from concept to federal funding. And so the, you know, I was mm -hmm. able to teach a government affairs class last year that hopefully got them up to speed on that. And, and our government operations today was taught by a, a local consultant who works, um, who works with communities and, and uh, towns in Long Island. And so he was able to go through the process of 
who he deals with on, in Southampton, Long Island. And it's, wow. it's not just your beach manager. It's, it's the town supervisor. It's the town council. It's the, it's the town attorneys. It's the town contractors. So there's a huge list of how you actually get things done. And I, I thought it was a really helpful and, class. And these are, these are substantive courses. I mean, they're, they're fast. We're talking about <laughs> a day. But I'll tell you, by the end of the day, I, I took the, the coastal engineering course, and I was, by the end of the day, you, you, I felt like a coastal engineer. I mean, it is intense. Worn, well, worn, and worn yeah. out. I oh, mean, a it's tired, a very intense. tired person, yes. But I think that what you're talking about, Derek, and what Tyler mentioned as well, is the unique nature of, of coastal issues and this cross-disciplinary mm -hmm. approach. And I think one of the reasons we all get so siloed is because the level of expertise required to be a coastal hydrologist or geologist or engineer is very deep and very intense and very complicated. And uh, it, it's why I think there's the geologist versus the engineer's volleyball game. You know, they're on opposite sides of the net. They're in their own silos <laughs> at ASBPA. The annual uh, volleyball game is, and, and I think though that what we're trying to do and what we all know is you have to be conversant across the spectrum to be effective mm -hmm. um, and i know in working with the public derek we we have a similar job in working with the public and the political leadership on coastal issues and uh, you have to have a basic understanding of coastal geology longshore and sediment transport the beach cycle you have to know about geology you have to know what a tidal prism is and you have to be able to explain that mm -hmm. in a way that the public and elected officials can understand. I think it's this is what we're trying to do, and I think this is why ASBPA is such a great uh, organization because yeah. you guys attack that. You're playing, uh, you're, you're playing on opposite sides of the net, but you're playing by the same rules. Yeah, uh, great. And on the same sand. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, Derek, tell us a little bit about the Coastal Zone Foundation. Yeah, this is this is also a a, a fun or an interesting. Um, topic, I think. Uh, so the Coastal Zone Foundation is an, a relatively old organization. Um, some of our listeners who've been doing uh, coastal, uh, coastal work for a while now may remember there was a, a Coastal Zone uh, conference um, that hasn't been done in probably 10 or 15 years, um, but it was a very interdisciplinary conference that I believe was every other year. Uh, in the 80s and into the 90s and, you know, brought, I think, a thousand people together mm, um, wow. and really looked at, you know, much the same way this podcast network is, is trying to approach it, brought together folks who work on port and marina issues, folks who worked on beach issues, folks who work on fishing mm. issues, um, to really look at the coastal zone as a whole. And it ended up just sort of, my understanding is sort of just withering out, you know, the organizers were tired um, and I couldn't keep putting it on. And, and so the, the organization Coastal Zone Foundation was uh, effectively starting to fizzle, uh, fizzle out, fade away. Uh, and so a number of ASBPA board members said, hey, you know, this, is a, this is, has a good brand. It's got a lot of folks who used to go to those conferences, remember it very fondly. And so um, sort of embraced it, took over the board, uh, you know, not a hostile takeover, <laughs> a very willing takeover of the board, um, and have sort of launched this to be a education platform uh, and an opportunity to train uh, coastal practitioners, both um, existing and, and up and coming ones. And, and this coastal, um, coastal certification program has come out of that. And uh, really it's, it's that board that sort of uh, spearheaded this effort. Um, but ASBPA has been the, uh, the, 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 the go-to place. I mean, it's being hosted at our summits and at our conferences. Um, and a lot of so our members are the ones taking it. Is, is the certification program, you had 10 modules. Mm -hmm. how, 
over how many months or years were those offered and how do you how do you take it? That's or, right. I, obviously, there's those are completed, but yep. what's coming up and how do you how do you do it? Well, so we're starting. Uh, this is the we finished up the final module today. Okay. Um, so it had been ten modules. They've been put out over the course of three years. Uh, we've done about three a year uh, at our two at our coastal conference and then one at our coastal summit. Right. Um, with the expectation that these will now, at least many of them will now move online. Uh, so those of us who've been doing it have had to hit every single conference and every single summit for three years in a row. So yeah. obviously that I was able to do it. Ruben, who's on our board, was able to do it. Pap said he was able to do almost all of them. Um, but that's, it's really hard to hit every single conference and every single summit. It so is. some of those are going to be moved online. We actually had a, a trial today where some of them were being recorded live. And we'll see if that actually worked out and those right. can move online. So moving forward, the hope is that most, if not all, of these can be done as a either an online course you can take by yourself or a webinar that can be done right. as sort of a live webinar. So you won't need to go to every single conference. Some have more of an interaction to them, um, but the hope is that you know we'll have these as an opportunity, and you can probably take them over the course of uh, you know certainly not more than a year, even if or, right. or quicker. Well, I know in talking to Ruben uh, Trevino over the last couple of years, he is quite proud of the fact that he is earned earning this certificate. And he has reminded me, if I'm not mistaken, that he has the highest grade point average in the curriculum. <laughs> <laughs> Except him and Pat were duking it out. But yeah. since Pat wasn't here at the conference, I'm sure he's going to finish number one. And uh, it, Ruben is a fantastic coastal manager and uh, great, uh, does a great job at the Galveston Beach. <laughs> so uh, it means something. I think it means something in the professional realm. It's, it's how you get better. Um, and it's just it's really a great thing that y'all are I guess we'll look for the next set of courses, and uh, maybe if they're in the webinar form, we can all jump in. Yeah, now that we've got them all completed, we will be looking to put them up online and, and actually advertise them. This was a, a little bit of a pilot the first go around, but now that they're all done. Um, well, we're going to jump in, Derek, into the history of ASBPA, learn a little bit more about this organization, and get on to, in our, in our second segment on the history, but our third segment what to expect at the conference. But before we do that, I wanted to thank our second sponsor of the American Shoreline Podcast Network, Dune Doctors uh, out of uh, Pensacola, Florida. Dune Doctors is one of the premier dune and shoreline restoration firms that I know of. They've been around for 17 years. They're here at the conference. It's great to see them. Uh, but Frederic Barrasset, the owner of that company, does a fantastic job, super serious. So if you're a shoreline property owner, manage large properties, or are working with local governments and are interested in natural dune restoration with native dune plants, one of the best methodologies, I think, for shoreline response, uh, give our friends at Dune Doctors a call, uh, www.dunedoctors.com. Derek, uh, one of the interesting, and, and when we all get together at these conferences, uh, you realize, especially when you hear uh, some of the elder statesmen of uh, the profession uh, get up and speak to us, you, you learn that uh, people have been at this for a long time, and your organization has been working on the American shoreline for a long time. And we thought it would be apropos uh, to spend a little time to talk about the history of the organization. So uh, tell, us, tell us about how ASBPA got started and how we got here. Yeah, ASBPA is a 92-year-old organization. I think we're mm. probably, the organization is probably older than anyone here at the conference. Um, 
we were founded in 1926, and it was uh, around the time where a lot of uh, engineers and, and beach folks started to recognize that we were having a coastal erosion problem. This was you know, 20 years after the major, 26 years after the major Galveston hurricane. Mm-hmm. Um, but in Coney Island, they'd just done a renourishment project for the first time and seen beach erosion actually happening in Coney Island, um, as well as on the Jersey Shore. Uh, and so in 1926, um, Governor uh, Harry Moore, who was the governor of New Jersey, invited the governors of the Atlantic and Great Lakes shorelines to meet in Asbury Park, New Jersey, on wow. October 14th and 15th uh, to just meet about beach problems. And it was attended by 85 delegates uh, that decided a national organization should be formed. So they put together an executive committee and met later and uh, established the um, American Shore and Beach Preservation Association. And it met uh, and was headquartered at the National Research Council in Washington, D.C., hmm. and then was finally fully incorporated as a, a 501c3, um, or I think it was actually before even that tax code was set up, but established as a nonprofit in 1933. Wow. Um, so we've been going at this for a long time, and then our first sort of full, you know, professional conference uh, that similar to what we're having here is was in 1938 in Washington, D.C., um, and have pretty much held a conference every single year uh, since 1938. Um, first couple were in D.C. We had some in New Hampshire. We had uh, one in Cape May, New Jersey in 1941, which is sort of incredible to think that, you know, during September the- 1941, we hmm. were talking about beaches. Wow. wow. During during World War II yep. on the East Coast. Um, uh, just people before. Were think, no, I well, guess that would be during. Yeah. Well, let's see. 41 or uh, 41, so it was right before the yeah, bombing yeah. of Pearl so Harbor. Right before yeah. Pearl Harbor. Wow. Incredible. Um, well, in that time, and I think that what's interesting about an organization that that organically appears and is the initiative of a single governor really calling together his colleagues is the perception of the problem. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the things that I find to be one of the a, a truism of coastal issues and shorelines is that reality is a relentless teacher. And if you're not paying attention, and you're starting to face problems, and, and you don't respond, the shoreline will let you know that you're missing the point. And uh, over and over, I think, uh, as property values and, and interests are affected, uh, it's an organic a, a process, an organization that grew out of an organic understanding of a real problem that we still have to fight today. And the problem is always evolving, and I think, um ASBPA is, is, I hope, and I believe we are, evolving with that problem, right? Mm-hmm. So in the, in the 30s, you saw coastal erosion and, and beach erosion happening for the first time. I mean, it was the first time you really, you know, the, the turn of the century is when you really saw people flocking to the coasts to recreate, right? Before, right. before the, the 1800s, the coast was a working coastline. People didn't come to the beach to recreate, and so the, the right. eroding coast, the eroding beach wasn't as much of an issue. So that, that was really what prompted it. Um, but now we're seeing you know, new problems with sea level rise, with development increasingly encroaching on, on, on beaches. Um, right. And so I think evolving to address those challenges, uh, evolving to address you know, the role that structures play and the, the role structures should play and, and also the role that structures shouldn't play, how we can move from hardened shorelines to living shorelines. Right. And that's really the direction that ASBPA is, is going. And in fact, that's the title of the conference, I think su- suggested resilient uh, shorelines for rising tides mm-hmm. suggest a broader base of approach, resiliency not being strictly a, a, a structural response idea, but yeah. much more natural, much more green 
oriented responses. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I wanted you to. Uh, well, I, before I go into that, I wanted to say what's it's what you said was really interesting to me that um, ASBPA is kind of an organic uh, creature that comes out of uh, our society's changing use of the shoreline mm -hmm. in the in the 20s. Uh, we were beginning to develop barrier islands more permanently. And prior to ASBPA and prior to then, these, these, the shifting sands of barrier islands and coastal areas throughout New Jersey, all across the eastern seaboard certainly, uh, were populated, uh, but wooden structures that were often destroyed, inlets, Seasonal. the maps are incredible. If you look at an old map uh, that are hand-drawn, you know, from... Uh, 1900 to 1910 there's like tremendous changes of the sh on the shoreline um, but as technology advanced and rail leads to increased industrialization along the shoreline we begin to uh, build differently and populate differently and then we get ASBPA kind of out of this mm -hmm. all of a sudden and this is one of the things I like to to really mention is that when people start to live on the shoreline they are then exposed to it and they can they they are aware of what's going on there. They can appreciate the wildlife. They can appreciate the environmental factors, and they're now a coastal community. So they, right. they those values are baked into their local politics and everything. So um, th this is all to say that your organization has uh, a lot of that good nutrients in its roots. Um, and one of the one of the cool branches, I guess we could say, of ASBPA is Shore and Beach. And I was wondering if you also another really old, great coastal institution. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So, uh, 1933, when we were incorporated, was also the first year that um, Shore and Beach was published. And again, I, I believe we've published it every single year since then. Um, so we've had uh, we do quarterly issues of a peer-reviewed journal on, on beaches and coastal processes and coastal engineering. So it's a really good resource. Um, and for those of you that are listening and are at the conference, we have a table full of back issues available, mm -hmm. uh, ranging back, I think, into They're the gold. 80s. So. They are. I have, a, I have a library. I just see what I'm missing, see what's on the table, what's available, because uh, they're, they, they don't go out of date. The, the, the kind of information in Shore and Beach Magazine, the depth of research, the peer-reviewed nature, uh, you know, one of the great things is if you're working on a shoreline, you find the right issue and somebody's done an evaluation of the shoreline change or the inlet that's near a project that you're involved with and you get a, you really get smart quick with Shore and Beach. Yeah, and I'm, we've had some of the preeminent coastal scientists and engineers have been the executive editor of that. Uh, going back, all the way back, uh, Perry Young, who I actually don't know much about, but he was the first editor of Shore and Beach. Mm. Um, but we've got some some really of the most preeminent, uh, Robert Weigel, uh, Paul Komar, who's going to be one of our lunchtime speakers, and I think you've got lined up to speak on the show yeah. tomorrow night. Am yes. I, uh, was I spilling the beans too I early think on that a little one? Bit, that's okay. We're looking forward to talking to Paul. Um, he's a real pro. Boy, he's been around a while and uh, knows a lot. We're really looking forward to talking to Paul. Tomorrow, yeah. I think tomorrow night. I hope. Good, good. And, and he was a he was the <coughs> executive editor of Shore and Beach from uh, in the '90s. So you can ask him about that. Um, so uh, and currently the executive editor is uh, Leslie Ewing right. um, from California. Uh, she's the uh, coastal engineer for the California Coastal Commission. Um, so we've had some really really impressive individuals uh, edit that, and then obviously some of the most preeminent 
Coastal Engineers, uh, Bob Dean, James Houston are regular right. publishers in that. Yeah, and I really, really, I, I can't We can't them. do an episode without talking about Dr. Houston. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I really, I'm a fan and uh, looking forward to having him on the show at some point. Absolutely. His analysis is, is really pristine and, and deep. Uh, well, Derek, let's see. Well, I don't want to lose the thread here on this history. So you have been, as long as I have been involved with ASPPA, you have been the executive director. Tell us a little bit about your history with the organization and um, how the organization has evolved in your time here. And, and then let's let's transition into uh, this conference. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so my my history is, is actually pretty new. I started about three and a half years ago. Um, before that, I'd been working on coastal Louisiana, so my background is more in marsh restoration and policy related to that, less the sandy beaches. Um, but bringing me on, I think, was a reflection of the fact that uh, ASBPA was no longer uh, and did not want to be considered a beach nourishment-only organization or a, a beach coastal structure organization. We really are looking at how we can uh, manage a coastal system or how we can advocate for policy and science that manages a coastal system from you know the edge of the, the sandy shoreline back into the lagoons, bays, estuaries. Uh, and so that's, that's something that I think is really going to be embraced in this conference, is going to be embraced in our government affairs platform, um, and embraced in some of the science and technology you're reading in, in Shore and Beach. We mentioned we had Shore and Beach. We had a, a Living Shoreline special, uh, special edition come out, I think, last year. Um, so it's, it's not, we're not just a, a sandy beach organization anymore, right. although that certainly is, you know, it's in our name and it's in our DNA, so we're never going to lose that. Uh, but that's not all that we are. Well, and it, there's no doubt that over the next decade, and I don't—I uh, know you have a board meeting tomorrow morning. You're going to sit down with uh, coastal professionals from all over the country that serve on the ASBPA board. But I think everyone's looking down the road here a little with a leery eye. Uh, there are some real challenges, not just on the American shoreline, but around the world, with sea level rise, increasing densification of the coast. Uh, the economic power of the American shoreline is underappreciated and substantial. It's, I almost get the feeling if you're looking down the road, you think, boy, there's a slow train wreck coming here, and we really have to get better. Um, how does it look, leading an organization that's in this kind of context, how does it, how does it uh, look to you, do you think? I mean, what, what, do you, what do you see coming down the road? We are certainly seeing more and more coastal issues coming up. I mean, how long, it seems like every year there's a major hurricane or a major coastal storm. Mm -hmm. uh, we're seeing intensification of storms from climate change. We're seeing sea level rise. We're seeing more people living on the coast. So a major storm is not going to hit the U.S. and not have a major impact. There's just right. not, there's not a place along the coast that it's not going to have a devastating economic blow. Um, so that is certainly going to be happening, and I think uh, we have, I don't want to be pessimistic, but we haven't as a country really faced head-on the kind of uh, crises that are, that are coming, bringing together both climate impacts and, and, and right. other related issues along the coast. That said, we're seeing tremendous work come out of some of the academic spheres, some of the research spheres, some states and, and communities, municipalities are doing tremendous forethought, yeah. are putting tremendous forethought into how we can handle this. I mean, you look at um, Plan YC, which is the New York City's uh, yeah. resilience planning. You look at 
Boston's no. in the middle of a major coastal rethink right now. Louisiana has um, their coastal master plan is one yeah. of the most, uh, you know, well thought out, in depth, scientific, and and policy related uh, coastal adaptation plans in the yeah. world. Mm-hmm. Um, I think so too. Uh, so there's a lot of good work happening, and it's transitioning that into the. I mean, the, the federal investment, where are we going to get the funds from, where are we going to get the, what's going to be the national response, as well as how are, how are locally um, funded projects going to get, uh, or how are projects going to get funded locally? Well, I had the pleasure of sitting down on, uh, on the Local Control podcast, which is the show I'm doing on local govern- governance, uh, with Pat Forbes from the Office of Community Development in Louisiana, mm-hmm. which has got a $100 million HUD-funded program mm-hmm. for community resilience and the relocation of the Isle de Jean Chirard, uh community. I mean, I think Louisiana's, and talking to Pat, uh, they understand the seas are rising, they understand the subsidence issue, and Louisiana is being, is more proactive and more forward-thinking, and I think Pat made pretty clear because they have to be, mm-hmm. because they've suffered some substantial losses, and they're, I think they're ahead of the game nationally in so many ways. And, uh, you know, maybe, yeah, the challenges are rising, but I think professionally what I'm seeing, and I think what you're talking about is there's some innovative thinking beginning. There are some real shifts going on in federal policy and in the academic universe and at local levels to, to get a handle on this. It's, yep. it's uh, I'm reminded of, of how... Uh, important it is that we're in Galveston right as as this Ike Dyke plan mm-hmm. is is being announced and unveiled by mm-hmm. uh, the Army Corps of Engineers uh, of course this is the the engineered solution to protect uh, Houston and and the Houston shipping channel and a lot of the petroleum mm-hmm. uh, refinery assets that are inland here that were devastated by Ike um, but this is a major engineering project that uh, has a, a major budget. And in talking with uh, a number of people, Peter, on our drive out, we were, yeah. we were shooting the breeze. And, you know, against the backdrop of these larger questions, we have to ask, is this... I, I know that it's a well-studied plan. I know that they've, they're doing their homework here. But, yeah. you know, this is, is this the right approach really i mean it 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 really throws into question what do you think derek are you want to weigh in on the ike dyke here in galveston have you got thoughts on that i hate to put you on this (laughs) i'll weigh in on the broader idea behind it which i think is we are living in 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 a society where there will be constrained resources obviously money is the first resource i mean if you look at the federal budget we're going to be increasingly um funding debt uh you know there's increasing entitlements the baby boomer generation is retiring i mean i don't want to get into the yeah. politics of that but yeah. there's there's a yeah. lot of funding that's going to be necessary to spend and so the discretionary spending there may be increases but we're not looking at a you know exponential increase in discretionary spending right. so where is the funding going to come from there's a, we you can't put out a plan that spends unlimited money because that's not a realistic plan right the other thing is is in many places uh there's a limited sediment supply um right uh, you know, I don't True. think we're looking at running out of sediment in the next 10, 20, even 30 years. But if you are planning for sort of 100-year time frames, and if you're even 50-year time frames, you need to start thinking about where, uh, where that sediment can come from. Right. And so the big challenge is, and, and this is, uh, you know, probably the toughest conversation that I think any community needs to have and any 
regional manager or, or, or politician needs to have is where can and should we be restoring? Where can and should we be protecting? Because the assets we have there are too valuable to lose. Right. And where do we need to say, you know, this this may not survive in 50 years, and so we might not need to be investing the resources. And that gets back mm-hmm. to the Louisiana State Master Plan, which I think is mm-hmm. one of the first and best documents to really say, not every community is going to survive where it is. And right. we need to provide options for that community to move and to be sustained as a community, right. but not in the exact same location. Yeah. Um, and Big that's challenge. something that everywhere, you know, Louisiana is facing it right now. I mean, the next yeah. hurricane is going to wipe out Ile de Jean Charles mm-hmm. um, and some of the communities down way down the bayou. But yeah. that's going to happen in, in North Carolina at some point. It's going to happen in New Jersey at some point. And that's not to say that, you know, we should pick up and say, let's abandon Long Beach Island. No, that's that's crazy. Right. But the, if New Jersey wants to put together a fully comprehensive restoration plan, they're not going to be able to protect every community on the bay and every home that's on the back bay. Right. There's going to need to be some areas where you say, this is going to be more expensive than we have the, or, or we simply don't have the resources mm. to protect yeah. and restore it, every single location. It's an arbitrage. I mean, is it arbitrage when I'm thinking of it? Doctors and nurses in emergency. What is that when called? Triage. 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 It is a triage problem. I mean, it's quite true that uh, and I think you're right to point out that the two biggest constraints are the financial constraints long-term, given the scope of the problem, and the, and the, and the materials involved. Mm-hmm. And it may be sediment, it might be some other asset, mm-hmm. but in order to respond to the problem, uh, it's going to be uneven. The funding is uneven, the assets available are uneven, the solutions are, uh, there's no two shorelines that are alike. Mm-hmm. There's no cookie cutter answer and I think one of the biggest things that Tyler and I ran into all the time in Charlotte County and working through this problem with the public and talking about raising taxes is people have an expectation that the problem can be fixed that we're going to do something and it is going to be over and not this what's difficult to get across is that you are in a relationship with the ocean that is persistent and that your funding and your strategy and your material sources have to be as persistent as a wave. We talked about this all the time. Your funding has to be as persistent as the waves. They don't stop. This isn't going to stop. There isn't a solution that's one and done. There really isn't. There isn't. And the, uh, what you were saying earlier is that as uh, the academic Uh, sector and great research is being done on the importance of coastal ecosystems and bay systems, uh, we as a society are going to be asking ourselves to what extent do we value allowing those systems to have their space too. I mean, we can't box in, we we can't have a situation where we are uh, giving uh, every inch to uh, our human needs right. uh, and be giving and, and be serving the environmental uh, needs to we have to balance that and at the more it seems to me the trend I observe is that science continues to discover new ways that these systems are critical these these coastal the, the 
it's the edge. Mm-hmm. It, it's not so much a relationship <clears throat> when you say that you need, you're in a relation, when you live in a coastal community, you have a relationship with the sea. You have a relationship with the edge of the sea. Right. And that edge will move. And you may not. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I always say when, when you declare, when you put a building line down and you plan ahead, what you're saying to the universe is there will be structures in position A and the ocean is going to be in position B. You have decided that the ocean is going to be located in a p- specific position Mm-hmm. And that's a, that's an expensive proposition to toss out. I mean, that's sort of like, wow, we're okay. So the ocean is is over there, and we're here, and that's how we want it to be. It's this. Yeah. It's what's fundamentally happening there is a transition from a dynamic system to a more static system, and then the cost of having a static system. And if I'll, I'll try to sort of bring this back to the yeah, history of the SBPA, um, which is I think we were formed in, in the you know 26 to 33 timeframe in one of the most uh, revolutionary engineering dominated times hmm. in history. Yeah. Uh, the Empire State Building was built Flight. in 1930. Yeah. Kitty Hawk was 1903. Yeah. Uh, you know this was a time when engineers could conquer the world. Right. There was. Yeah. Lindbergh was 20. Eight seven? Nah, you're you're Wait. you're trying me here, man. Come on, um, <laughs> Charles Lindbergh, twenty seven. Twenty seven. Uh, the Great Mississippi River flood was twenty seven. Um, Herbert Hoover was an en- he, the only president that's ever been an engineer. Right. Was you know it was engineers were the they were the wow they could conquer the world. There were, engineers could there was nothing an engineer couldn't do, and right. so there was Panama this very canal. This very structural, um, we could build it, we could stop, we could dominate nature. We could make the Mississippi River go where we wanted it to. We could yeah. we could create a path from the Atlantic Ocean to the uh, Pacific Ocean, even if it did mean blowing through a mountain, right? So that mm-hmm. was the time that we were created. And I think there was very much this sense of we could do this. And now I think where we are is is is, as I said, living shorelines. And, and maybe even to tee up our, our, our next segment about what's coming up at the conference, we're talking about how we engineer with nature. Right. Um, that's a big topic that the Army Corps of Engineers is thinking about. Uh-huh. They're going to be presenting on it uh, this week. Of how, do we, how do we use nature? How do we, rather than build a seawall, which has been here in Galveston for 100 years almost, right. how do we actually build dunes that have vegetation that can actually grow? Right. Seawall, yeah. when you build it, a seawall stays where it is. Vegetated dunes can grow. The, Their storage they, systems. They yeah. build roots. The the, the plants sh- uh, grow in height, and they catch sand, and you can actually accrete with sea level rise. So how do we mm-hmm. how do we take that engineering that we know how to do and look at it in a twenty first century way? And that's working with nature. Well, it's a it seems like a much needed maturation to a point of interjecting some humility mm-hmm. in our relationship with the edge, as Sutter puts it. The land-water interface is a pretty powerful place. And uh, I think humility, working with nature to the extent that we can figure that out, is uh, the next phase. Maybe, And maybe that's where the conference, uh, when I look at the topics and look at what you guys have put together for the for the SBPA National Conference, I start to see more of that, Derek, and it's really good to see it. Yeah, and I mean that's you know resilience is a buzzword, but that's that's what it means, right? It's it's bouncing back. It's not you know standing strong in the face of rising tides. It's not resisting rising tides. It's 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 resilient shorelines and, and mm-hmm. rising tides. It's acknowledging that you know tides and storms are going to knock us back a bit, but then we can come back stronger. So you're not trying to be the 
you know, the brick wall, you're trying to be the, the I don't know, what's the, the bamboo or the... Well, a little the, bend, yeah. not break, a yeah. little resiliency, a little, uh, well, that's the word. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think what Pat uh, Forbes said in his interview, I said, what, do you, what is resilience? And he said, you know, it means that we can take a shock and adapt and come back. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is, it, 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 what's true in that very simple phrase is that it's an acknowledgement of the impact is going to occur. It's not like we're going to build a structure and there is no, there will be no impact. That maybe was how we used to think about it. And I think he's talking about this is going to happen. We are going to be affected. These are going to be challenges. And resiliency is about how do we adapt and, and continue. Mm-hmm. It's a better philosophy. It really is. It's essential. I mean, it's and it's also, I think, the natural evolution of... Uh, thinking about how to exist in this relationship with the shore. I mean, again, on Coastal News Today, when we, when Peter and I sat down, we started to think about the interconnectedness of all of these different industrial sectors mm-hmm. that are using this space for all of their their needs. Now, these are people. These are people with lifespans that have kids, that have bills to pay, that have mortgages, that have real lives. And they exist in the confines of this relationship that we're talking about. So we need, for our own mental health, we need to know that we have a resilient plan. So, And, and the engineering will be better and more enjoyable. I mean, right? Totally. You look at every dystopic <laughs> movie, Blade Runner, there's no trees. It's all iron. Yeah. It's all concrete. And really what we have are, you know, in cities you've got green roofs and on, you know, rather on the coast, rather than having seawalls and brick and concrete, we're having yeah. shorelines with dunes that have, you know, hardened cores. But you you have a place for, you know, people to recreate and sea turtles to nest. And oh, by the way, it, it protects your community. Yep. Uh, Seattle is in the process of building, uh, burying, I think it's Interstate 5, if I'm not mistaken, which is the... Uh, the, the road that goes right along Puget Sound in Seattle, and one of the most beautiful coastal cities in America, just it's, it's stunning, but they're, they're going to get that structure out of the way and reconnect the city in a more natural way to the shoreline. And, you know, so you can, it is possible to do these things. Uh, they're not cheap, but they're, it's the way we have to go. We have to be more creative uh, and more imaginative. <laughs> You know, and I think that's where we got to go. Uh, yep, I, I agree. I agree. And of course, I would uh, encourage all the listeners to uh, listen to our previous conversation with Derek uh, a few episodes ago, where we uh, talked about some of the limitations that we have in terms of funding and and some of the some of the way that the federal government can can set the tone and and kind of lay out the red carpet for some of these really cool ideas. Um, I want to I want to transition us into our third segment where we're going to talk about the conference and what yeah. all the exciting stuff we have on tap. But Peter, our final sponsor today is Meet the Pros, our new show. Yes. Fully uh, sponsored content. <clears throat> this is an opportunity for all the awesome vendors out there uh, who work in the coastal space to uh, come on the show, meet the pros, and tell us the story of your company. What makes you you special? Why 
uh, why should a local government trust you? What is your track record on the projects that you work on? Right. Services, skills. I, I think this is really a, a good feature for us to do. Uh, Meet the Pros is going to be a show where, uh, as you said, it, companies uh, get to talk about what it is they offer, what makes their company special. In, in sitting down with local governments over many years, uh, so many local elected officials in beach communities are sometimes new arrivals. They've come from the Midwest. They've moved down to retire. They're, you know, interested in their civic life, and they get involved in these decisions. And they are unfamiliar with, gee, what does a coastal engineer do? Why can't we, you know, you get this all the time. Can't we just build, can't we just build a wall here? Can't we, what about this breakwater? I've heard about this product. I've heard... Uh, and, and so part of Meet the Pros is a chance to, for companies to reach out to the purchasers of their services and to explain what their company offers, how it's different, why it should be considered. And I think it's going to be a really great segment. And I'm hoping here at the conference we get a few folks signed up to do. Yeah, come on down to our booth, uh, inquire about it. You can also learn about it on the advertise page at coastalnewstoday.com, our brand new website. Um, we would uh, love to have your company featured on Meet the Pros. Yep, 20, 20 to 30-minute interviews of coastal professionals. All right, now that we got the business taken care of, Derek, let's talk about the exciting stuff. We have an awesome conference coming up. You've got the program open. Uh, let's talk about what we have in store. Yeah, so uh, the morning kicks off, at least for me, and, and uh, 40 of my... Uh, some of the greatest coastal practitioners in the country sitting down at the ASBPA board meeting. Um, our board is is uh, fairly widely representative of the coastal community. We've got folks from uh, Cape Cod to Waikiki, uh, mm. all four coasts. We include the Great Lakes as, as one of our coasts. Um, and, you know, academics, professionals, uh, city managers, um, industry folks. So we'll be having a board meeting going over a new strategic plan, talking a bit about the future of the organization. Uh, but then the conference really kicks off at one o'clock uh, with our with our plenary. Um, and there's going to be a, a bunch of great speakers. Um, I'm really excited to hear uh, Larry McKinney, who's the executive director of the Heart Research Institute. And Peter, you said you had a connection to him. I did. Well, back in the day, well, I went to, when I uh, was studying marine biology here in Galveston at Texas A&M University in Galveston. Uh, Dr. McKinney was a professor then and was one of the professors uh, I took classes from. And uh, he moved on into uh, the state service, worked for the Texas Parks and Wildlife Department, and uh, just a superb uh, thinker. And, and now at the Heart Research Institute, which is, I think, the preeminent the folks at maybe uh, UT Port Aransas or the Marine, UT Marine Sciences uh, Center might disagree, but I think the A&M uh, Heart Research Institute is really fantastic, and I'm looking forward to hearing from Larry again. It's always good to see him. Uh, yeah, and then uh, we also have uh, Jonathan Sim, who is the technical director for HR, HR Wallingford, which is an organization uh, based in the United Kingdom, and they're one of uh, that nation's preeminent coastal and water engineering organizations. They are um, sort of a, a public-private type of organization. I'm not really familiar with the, uh, the, the makeup of how the UK industry works, but um, he is their, uh, they said, the chief technical director for resilience. So really interested to hear some of his thoughts on how the United Kingdom is looking at coastal risk management. Uh, it's an island nation. 
they might have some good thoughts on that topic. <laughs> <laughs> yep. You know. Uh, so uh, interesting perspective there. And, and um, Ed Russo, who's with the Galveston Core District, is going to talk about coastal policy. So really a, an interesting, uh, interesting plenary kickoff tomorrow. Um, and then tomorrow night, we've got a, a fantastic poster session. Um, over 30 posters are being presented. About half are student posters, half are professional posters. Uh, and uh, our student posters are uh, up for uh, awards. So if you have a, if you're able to, if you are at the conference and able to check it out, mm -hmm. anyone can vote on what you think is the best student poster. That's right. We get um, to vote, don't yep. we? I remember voting last year. It was pretty cool. Um, it's one yeah. of my favorite parts of the conference every year, going yeah. and seeing all the posters. <clears throat> Very cool. You know, uh, when we were talking uh, to Michael Poff, who's uh, going to be hosting the podcast for Building Beaches Better, uh, the Coastal Engineering Show. And Derek, we have got, I don't think we've said it. We have Derek not. Derek is the to. host of the Capital Beach Podcast, which, uh, and I don't think we're saying who your first guest is, but I know who it is, and it's going to be really so great. Good. <laughs> I'm, uh, so I'm, good. I'm looking forward to it. I'll, uh, once the, once the, conference is over uh, right. uh we we should be able to to have a pretty pretty cool uh, kickoff show so. it's going to be good and and derek's going to cover federal policy and all of the interesting and intricate things that the federal government does that affect the american shoreline in talking to michael poff uh one of the things he emphasized was this student aspect he said you know i i'm learning a lot just thinking about doing a podcast. It's a medium I've never been involved with, and I know it reaches a younger audience. And he said, the challenges that we're facing on the American shoreline are huge, and we need more horses. We need more students to understand what coastal engineering is, why it is an interesting career, where you can get involved, what are the right universities. I mean, I think this reach, uh, outreach that he's wanting to do to the next generation of coastal professionals is super cool. And I yeah. didn't expect that, actually. And that's why the poster session is so neat. Yeah, you get to right go in, in there line. and chat with these. I know, we're going to get to talk to him. The next generation of coastal scientists and engineers and, and people who are going to be working on the shoreline, and they've done some great work. And, mm -hmm. oh, it's, it's, just, it's just really cool. Uh, yeah, and then, uh, of course, in the evening, af the, there's the after party, I guess you could say, that the student and new professionals are hosting uh, after the poster session. So I'll, I'll get a chance to hang out with them, and, you know, we can take the tie off and hopefully just right. get to learn from them what they're working on. And, and hopefully some of our, uh, you know, professional practitioners have an opportunity to interact and connect and network. And, you know, hopefully these, these students can use this conference to get a job. I know a number of our... Mm -hmm sort of new professionals at the conference ended up getting jobs through context, you mm. know, or, or, or made, made, uh, made acquaintances that helped them get jobs. So it's no a, doubt. a good opportunity to network. We, uh, in fact, we, we met one of our podcast hosts at the ASBPA conference in uh, Fort Lauderdale, uh, Jenna Valenta, mm -hmm. who's got the yep. Sea Change podcast, was somebody we met through networking at the conference. I think Tyler. Uh, Absolutely. Just happened to sit next to her at lunch. Yeah. And the next thing you know, <clears throat> we were chatting about uh, the work that we were doing and the work they were doing with the Literal Society. And a year later, she's uh, hosting shows on the American Trolling Podcast Network. Yeah, it's great. So that's what these conferences can do. Uh, and then Thursday, we kick off our concurrent sessions. We've got over 200 presentations this year, so it's going to be tough to go and hear everything you want to hear because there's just too many going on at the same time, but right. uh, some really cool things going on. Uh, we have, for the first time ever, an entire track. Um, all day Thursday, you can go and listen, listen to Beach Operations. Um, 
So this is an opportunity to step away from the policy and the engineering and the science and really talk about how you manage a beach to you know in, get people to enjoy it. Uh, right. So we've got issues about parking, about um, bringing sporting events to your beach, about mm. how you deal with crowds. How you, what happens when you get too much seaweed washing up on the beach? How do you balance the, the desires of, of the community to not have a foot of sargassum on the beach with the intent to try to keep your beach healthy and habitable right. by, by critters, by the, the, the creatures that actually like the sargassum and eat it. So how do you, how do you maintain that balance? Well, so it's going to be a cool track. I think that is a great track and it, because it, it ultimately is the discussion of how the public interacts with the shoreline. And look, all, all of us in the business and all the coastal professionals out there are trying to do things that make the coast a better, more uh, enjoyable, more effective space. And the beach shops guys are the guys who struggle with these very difficult policy questions on sargasm management or parking and how do you get the revenues and what's the access plan going to be and how you reconcile the rights between the public and the private. I mean, that operations is quite an appropriate topic for the American Shore and Beach Preservation Association. That's the point. Mm -hmm. I mean, ultimately, yeah. we're trying to create spaces for people, and these are the guys who struggle, have to struggle. And I, I think having a track where operations managers from different communities around the country can share experiences is a super good idea. I would also add to that that for the conference goers who are not uh, – veteran coastal professionals maybe they are like pat passetti they they have uh through their job encountered uh the coastal space and and really want to bone up this is the type of subject matter that really hits home for them mm -hmm. if you are a member of a coastal community or you are managing a condo in a coastal community knowing how these decisions are made help helps you not only get results when you are going to your local government when you are interfacing with your yeah. parks department or whoever is yeah. charged with with the issue that you're having, it allows uh, it allows you to understand the the complexity and actually get to an end result that's right. that's realistic. What are the considerations involved? It's great programming. Yeah, it's good. Yeah. Uh, another cool segment we've got going on Thursday is a three part uh, so three sessions three parters on engineering with nature. I mentioned this earlier with the Army Corps of Engineers. So Todd Bridges, who's based out of uh, the Corps' uh, Engineering Research and Development uh, Council at uh, in Jackson, Mississippi, has been leading this effort. Um, and so we've got a whole bunch of Corps presenters talking about how you manage and how you restore a coastline working with nature. Um, so really interesting stuff coming out of that. Uh, I'm excited to go check out. Is some that of our a registered sessions. trademark? Um, so they have it as a registered trademark. I, I, I guess they have. That's a, I think that's going to be my first question to Todd tomorrow. Yeah. Is. <laughs> that, we're going to have to follow up with that. Uh, well, you know, I mean, people would say, did it take a lot of smoke and mirror? This is uh, to get the Corps of Engineers folks to start thinking about designing with nature because in the old days these are the guys who used a lot of concrete I and mean, yeah. they're about flood control yeah, and, and TNT. <laughs> but having a presentation where the Corps of Engineers is stepping into resilient shorelines uh, I don't know if they had to do the sage thing and sort of like <laughs> wisp away some of the old habits and cleanse the room plans and bring some new now they're actually very innovative and Vicksburg is some of the leading researchers on Coastal design really is it at the U.S. Army Corps of yeah. Engineers. They're the pros. And I, I you know, I, I hate to pick out a single sponsor, but I wanted to just flag that uh, the, that 
whole track is being sponsored by the uh, Natural Infrastructure Initiative, which is a, a really cool initiative that's being spearheaded by hmm. Caterpillar, the, the hmm. construction really? equipment manufacturer. Tell us about that. Um, and so they have, uh, you know, Cat is a, I don't know, Fortune 100 or Fortune 50 company. I mean, they're a major, yes. major company. Yeah. Um, and realize that a lot of their work is is done in, in moving dirt. I mean, that's what they do. They move dirt. And a yeah. lot of the dirt moving obviously comes to, you know, building roads and what all, but a lot of it comes from restoring um, huh. restoring uh, natural systems, so what coasts, and, and so they kick this off, and it's it's a partnership between um, Caterpillar and the Nature Conservancy and Great Lakes Dredge and Dock and uh, AECOM, and I, and I apologize to a couple of the other companies and, and, and folks that are part of that, but it's a both nonprofit and for-profit companies mm -hmm. working together to put together um, policy and big ideas, and because they're some of these major major companies and major industries and major nonprofits, they have access to, you know, some of the more powerful people in Washington D.C. Um, ASBPA has been pleased to sort of sit in on that and be part of their policy hmm. uh, scoping team. Great. Um, and so a lot of those folks will be here. They're sponsoring wow. this track. Uh, so really innovative work coming from um, folks that may not have historically been the kind yeah. of people you think about working in the coastal wow. policy. Wow, I area. think that's really encouraging because it means that, and I've been hearing about resiliency now for I don't know how many conferences if we went back. Living Shorelines has been uh, bouncing around in the, in the profession for some years now. But to see it filtering down into the thinking of, of Caterpillar or in, in deeply into the Corps of Engineers and getting rooted in, in, the, in the community I think that's really exciting, and, and things change slowly in this world, and it's not always possible to sort of dramatically, suddenly come up with, boy, there's just a whole different way. We never thought of it before. That's kind of not how it works, but it's clear that in the programming that you're putting together, to see a session dedicated to engineering with nature and with the Corps of Engineers and the providers and AECOM together, Boy, that tells you there's some roots in this, finally. I think that's great news. Totally. And then our lunchtime speaker is, is uh, we already mentioned, but uh, Paul Komar, who's going to be your guest, hopefully. Yes. Uh, so Paul's agreed. Um, you know, certainly when they say, oh, yeah, he, you know, he, he wrote the book on it. I mean, he, he did. He wrote he did. many of the books <laughs> on uh, coastal engineering and coastal science processes. Um, right. So, uh, yeah, looking forward to talking to him. I These folks who've have the history and the depth and who've been through the transformations of thinking along the American shoreline are really important people. And uh, we've missed a few of those along the way. Um, and I don't intend to, to miss many more, but so really looking forward to talking to Paul. And Thursday, of course, uh, weather permitting wraps up with the volleyball game. Mm -hmm. um, apparently this is an ASBPA tradition, although it hasn't actually happened in the past couple of conferences because of poor weather. So fingers crossed that Thursday uh, <laughs> stays stays fair. Um, it's been a beautiful couple of days here on Galveston. I think it's supposed to cool off a little bit, but hopefully, hopefully, hopefully it's nice. We, we we just want to let everybody out there in in listener land know we've got a ringer available. Uh, Max, our sound guy, is a, a great athlete. I, Max, what six five? I think whoever's team you're on. <laughs> He's, he's taller than 6'5". He's giving us the higher symbol. I mean, we're just saying, if you want to stop by the booth, maybe we can make a deal. I just want to say, you know, there may, be an, there may be an ad involved somewhere. But, uh. um, and then our, our conference wraps up on Friday. We got a, a lot of great presentations uh, on Friday morning. Um, 
one I'm looking forward to is, I don't actually know a whole lot about it, but a panel discussion uh, talking about how you value sand and gravel projects. This hmm. is sort of building on the um, some of the work that you guys have done yeah. uh, on on the economics and how you demonstrate the economic value of right. beach projects. They're going to be talking about the economic Very value important. of sediment management. Um, I'm presenting on Friday, doing my uh, my my little spiel on uh, comparing the Dust Bowl and the the loss of sediment from wow. the Midwestern Plains wow. to uh, the the loss of sediment along our coasts, and seeing Ooh. if we can draw sort of analogies and lessons really? from that. Um, it's a little bit off the wall, but God, I that's so love it. cool, Derek. Uh, that's great. Um, who was the author who wrote the Dust Bowl? The great book. Paul, this is Barry, what's, the guy who wrote also wrote The Rising Tide, the book about the oh, New Orleans uh, flood. Yeah, John Barry. John Barry. Didn't he also write one about the Dust Bowl, or am I mixing this up? But that's a really interesting thing to compare. I think uh, that's just really cool. I mean, FDR, sediment management, mm -hmm. the Soil Conservation Service, the whole history of how they tried to hold sediments in place, uh, you know, was dramatic yeah. during the 30s. Yeah. That's just a, and, ooh, and a sort cool of thing my, my thesis and I'm yeah, teasing me, my talk is that yeah, go you've got basically a couple different uh, areas. You got uh, there was an economic pressure to the, the USDA, the Department of Ag, was focused on maximizing production. Mm -hmm. You had uh, a political system that was intent on sort of developing uh, the right. land sort of stemming from the Homestead Act. Right. Uh, mm -hmm. And then you layered that on top of a technical innovation where you went through the Industrial Revolution where previously yeah. Uh, crop processes have been you, know, you pull a plow with a horse and then all of a sudden you can pull a plow with a tractor and you tear right. up a lot more soil right. and then you sort of got that sort of that that uh, you know that little combination combination of factors. of factors and then you add in a major climatic factor with the dust right. bowl it was a you know 500 year drought and yep. right. on the coast you've got climate change and sea level rise uh, wow. and so you've got this system uh, that's sort of a crisis waiting to happen and so Looking at that, I feel like the analogies of, of the causes are similar. Mm -hmm. um, not so sure if the, the, wow. the results or sort of the lessons learned are parallel, but that's well, sort of where but I, it, what I think is it, it's just by pulling those pieces together, talking about what ha was happening statutorily, what was happening economically, what was happening in terms of the country's migration and right. changes, mm -hmm. all of these coming together in this perfect, I don't know, storm, but certainly this, this outcome that was highly detrimental, but largely unforeseen. Um, that is a great case study. That's actually fits quite well. If you look at American shoreline policy, you could draw some interesting parallels there. I think it's I hadn't thought of that ever. That's a great, I, yeah, good idea. I, New to the program. And I also Way like to, to uh, I, I like it because to me it's hopeful, right? You know, mm -hmm. we were talking earlier about, you know, the coast can seem bleak, right? You're looking at sea level rise, increasing storms. It's, it, it's, it's scary what's happening on the coast. But you think about what happened in the Dust Bowl and the, the dust storms that were happening and the migration. I mean, there were, you know, hundreds and thousands of square miles that were being considered to just be abandoned. Yeah, that they yeah. were just, this is, this is land that we have to abandon. Right. And they didn't. I mean, in the in the course of a decade, they were able to figure out how to yeah. implement a system, a political, you know, a, a technological system. We're talking about how mm. they keep soil in the ground yeah. with the political will to say we're going to invest. You know, we're going to create the National uh, Na Natural Resource Conservation Service under right. the Ag to say, you know, we're going to switch that economic model from 
plow up as much land as you can to actually we're going to pay farmers to not plow up right. land right. that is highly erodible. Right. And so it, they switched, the, they flipped the economic system on its head and that, you know, created it also, you know, it, it the the farmers, the actual homesteaders, the the people that stuck it out, and many of them did in in the Dust Bowl, got behind it. They they and of course they were compelled to by the magnitude of the disaster. It's fair to say it was. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Dust Bowl, I believe, lasted something like eleven years or mm-hmm. something. You know, it it was a long time. It wasn't a single dust storm, but uh, the the actual citizens who were out there got behind it and when they were told hey you plow but plow this way you got to do it differently it's not going to be as efficient your your yield might go down a little bit every year but hey you're going to preserve the land Mm -hmm. they took it to heart and they they embraced those changes and it, it is it's an uplifting story that we can we can come together and you know figure out and start to solve some of these problems. Yeah, and I this this notion that it is not a hopeless profession or that it is dreary and dark is something Robert Jones in our interview with Robert Jones, who's the uh, host of the Catch Curve podcast, and deals with federal fisheries policy. He said, at this moment in time, we have the best managed fisheries we've ever had, kind of on the planet, that are in exploitive mode, and that they're the American fisheries management system is by and large a tremendous success story. And he wants to talk about what the hard work that people do, starting in Congress with the Magnuson-Stevens Act, all the way down to the fisheries management councils and all of the players that get to the table and not are always duking it out, but but are engaged in a very difficult decision and have had great success. Um, I'm, I'm always reminded about New Jersey. New Jersey's beaches, are in better condition now than they were 50 years ago, sort of top to bottom. And, and you know, it, I think that's a success story. I guess that's the home, home base of ASBPA back when it kicked off. But I think the Jersey shoreline is a success if you're looking at it from, from responding to a very significant problem. Um, people can argue about whether they liked it or not, but it's a good story. Uh, and there's a lot of successful coastal communities around the country who face tough problems and approach them and tackle them. Yeah, and I think humans are sort of hardwired to focus on the, the bad a lot of the time. You know, we, mm-hmm. we sort of remember those difficult moments, those challenging moments, and I think we need to take time to celebrate the successes. Indeed. And, and that's, um, I mean, driving into Galveston across the causeway, uh, Tyler and I are looking over to the right and seeing the restored marshes all in that bay system, which when I was down here in the early 80s was open water. And they have worked very hard in the Galveston Bay system to bring back the marshes that they've lost here. There's better management practices. The bay is cleaner. Um, I think the fishing and the commercial fishing and the shrimping is better than it was uh, 30 years Certainly ago. Certainly managed better. Yeah, I, I you know, I can, I'm hoping to run into the Galveston Bay Foundation people oh, and really get an update on, you know, I'm going to find their session and go sit yeah. in and look at the state of the bay. Well, Derek, it sounds like it's going to be an incredible conference. Uh, we are so excited to be here. Uh, it's this is really our, our coming out party for uh, yeah. Coastal News Today and the American Shoreline Podcast Network. So uh, thank you for, for inviting us in for this interview here. And uh, we really look forward to it. Um, do you have any closing, closing thoughts? 
you know, I'm looking forward to the conference too. We've got over 400 people uh, registered and more signing up every day. Uh, so great, excited for the conference and, and thrilled you guys are here. I mean, I think the, the, the we were talking about the very start of the interview of the idea of American Shoreline Podcast Network bringing together uh, different aspects of the coastal community. Mm-hmm. I think that's very much in line with what ASBPA right. wants to do. We are the, you know, we're at heart the beach guys, um, but beaches only survive and beaches only work if every other part of the coastal community is working. And so we need to yeah. be touching all those folks and we need to be able to communicate with those. And that's what you guys are helping to do. So we're really glad you're here. Thank you. Thank you. And and thank ASBPA as our sponsor, Derek. And thanks to Dune Doctors. And as always, thanks to Max, the sound guy who makes us sound better than we are. <laughs>